as you return to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, as we continue our way through the gospel of Luke, uh, this morning we're looking at Luke 12, 1 through 34, uh, which if you have one of the red Bibles, that's on page 871. And I want to ask you one more time, if you're able to stand, so that we might honor the reading of God's Word. I know we've stood a lot, but I'm going to bless you by letting you sit for a long time after this. <laughs> Luke 12, 1 through 34. Hear the reading of God's Word. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for a two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me, acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of, his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Would you remain standing as we pray one more time? Father, as we have prayed many times, we ask once more, bless and empower the preaching of your word. May your spirit 
be noticeably working in this moment, we pray. We ask this for our good and for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Don Carson has said that when his kids were little, there were times that they wanted to watch TV programs that didn't necessarily advocate for the Christian worldview. Now, I don't mean something that was, was lewd or something like that, but, but something perhaps maybe that, that glamorized stealing, you know, or something like that, just something that was contrary to the worldview. And Carson says that on some occasions, he would allow his children to watch these shows, but they had a family rule. And the rule went like this. If we ever give you the opportunity to watch these shows, then we have to watch it all together as a family. And not only will we watch it all together as a family, but then after the show is over, we're going to sit together and have a conversation. So it depends how much the kids really wanted to watch the show, right? Quite an investment. But Carson's thought was he wanted to be able to sit with his kids and have a conversation that would note perhaps things like that show glamorized behavior that is actually sinful. And sin is always destructive. He wanted to make sure that the things that his children were seeing before them, that they didn't begin to take in and imitate. Well, I think that's precisely what's going on in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 34. You'll remember when we looked last week at chapter 11, verses 14 through 54, that Jesus had focused on the Pharisees and the lawyers. He had given them scathing rebukes, strong words of condemnation, calling them out again and again and again. Well, when you get to chapter 12, you'll notice in verse 1 that the audience has changed. We read in chapter 12, verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples. So whereas Jesus had spent chapter 11 with strong rebuke and condemnation about the way that the Pharisees and the lawyers were living, in chapter 12, he now turns his attention to focus on and give instructions to his disciples. But the two sections aren't entirely disconnected. If you remember back in chapter 11, for example, just take verses 37 through 54. When Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and lawyers, you'll notice that he exposed in them certain sins that characterized them. For example, their hypocrisy. Uh, Look back at, at chapter 11, verse 39. And the Lord said to the Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. So so Jesus was saying, on the outside, everything looks good, but inside you're corrupt. That's hypocrisy. He exposed their greed right there in that very verse. Inside you are full of greed. But not only that, he exposed also their praise, their desire to get the praise of man, to be exalted before those who are around them. So that, for example, in verse 43, he says, woe to you Pharisees, For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So if you were to characterize Jesus' strongest rebuke of the Pharisees and lawyers, it would fall under the categories of you are hypocrites, you're greedy, and you're pursuing the praise and the approval and the honor of man. When you get to chapter 12, and Jesus then turns to his disciples to instruct them, What topics do you think he takes up? These very topics. He warns them against hypocrisy. He warns them against fearing man more than they fear God. He he encourages them to, to, to battle against covetousness and greed. In essence, he was having the same kind of conversation that Don Carson would have with his children. I want to make sure that the things that you have been seeing, that you're not imitating in your own life. And so for us, Luke 12, 1 through 34, is incredibly helpful because I think if we're honest, we would say that these sins that Jesus is pointing out are common temptations for us. We can easily be tempted to live hypocritically. We can be tempted to be captured by by greed and covetousness and to be so captured by that that we tend to be anxious about things that we have or don't have. 
And we can be individuals who do not fear God as we should, but instead fear our fellow man. And so what I want to do is just take Jesus' points, his warnings here, these common temptations, and raise them up for us as well so that we might see them and think through them this morning in light of what Jesus teaches. So three points this morning, and the first one is this. Beware of and fight hypocrisy. Beware of and fight hypocrisy. It's as if Luke, very often we say in the office when we're studying a text, we'll say to one another, I'm not sure the biblical author wanted this text to be preached because it's very hard. What seems that maybe Luke did want this text to be preached because he helps me number my points. You'll notice in verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The idea of hypocrisy is presenting an image externally that is opposite of what is within. The idea might be like putting on a mask so that you're presenting something that is advertising one thing that is actually false. Again, as we've seen, this is something that the Pharisees did. They cleaned the outside of the cup but left the inside of the cup dirty. They, they, they wanted to look externally holy and pure, but they didn't so much care about purity that when they were in secret, they were pursuing it. Or Jesus can save the lawyers in chapter 11, verse 46. You load people down with burdens that are hard to bear. So, so what you're doing is you're saying to everybody, this is what is good for people to do. But then Jesus adds, but you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So they're advertising, this is what's good to do, but you don't do it yourself. Jesus warns us as his followers against adopting those same kind of hypocritical practices. Don't advertise something externally that we're not willing to do internally, or don't have to advertise something publicly that we're not willing to walk by in secret. And Jesus pictures this hypocrisy in terms of leaven. That's the way he says it, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We, we typically don't talk about leaven as much, just something like yeast. Uh, yeast is, is something that, that, that goes into something like, like dough and bread, and it's, it's small. I mean, if you were, if you were to look at it, it, it seems to have a little potency, and yet yeast will spread throughout and then cause this rising effect of the bread. It seems that Jesus then is taking that metaphor and saying hypocrisy can spread and have great effects. And so he doesn't want us to see others acting hypocritically and begin to, in a subtle way, take on those practices ourselves. But Jesus also gives a warning, or I think we might say a weapon to help us. For believers in the Bible, when we encounter warnings about sin, we can think of those in terms of Jesus arming us with a weapon. When we are tempted to act, act hypocritically, when we're tempted to do in private something we would not do in public, then Jesus says, I want to give you a warning, a weapon that you can use to remind yourself in that moment and fight it. And the warning, the weapon, is this, verses 2 and 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Jesus gives a warning here that he will expose our secret sins. Now, ultimately... Secret sins, I think Jesus is saying here, will be exposed on the day of judgment. Again, take the Pharisees. Everybody might think, wow, if anybody knows the Lord, it's them. But on the final day, they will not be able to pull off their hypocrisy any longer. Jesus will expose. What they've said in private will be brought public. The way that they have rebelled against Jesus in secret ways will be made clear to everyone. But if you're a believer... The Lord may be so gracious to you as to expose your secret sins now. Lily and I, in 07 09, moved our family up to Louisville for the good part of two years. While we were there, we were part of a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I remember the pastor of the church, Ryan Fullerton, telling a story, even, even in the two years I was there, mentioning this story repeatedly because it really is an amazing story. There was an individual who was walking in adultery, 
a man who was cheating on his wife. And one day, he was with his mistress when his phone accidentally dialed and called his wife. And his sin was exposed. Now, if you are a believer, do you know what word describes that moment right there when his phone called his wife? The word is grace. Because the way that the Bible pictures God's wrath being revealed in this present time is he gives us over to our sins. He hands us over. But by his grace, it may be that we are walking in a place where everyone thinks all is good in our lives and we are hiding secret sins, doing things in private that we know we should not do. And it may be that the Lord shows his grace to us by saying, I'm not going to give you over to that. I'm going to expose you so that you might turn and repent. Now, it may be that the Lord has not exposed you yet. And it may be that he's just using his word this morning as a means of saying, I need not expose you if you'll simply repent. But believe me, if you belong to him, he loves you enough not to let you linger in secret sin. And so this is twice now that we've seen this, looking at the hypocrisy last week of the Pharisees and lawyers, and now looking at it this week again. And it seems that the Lord is saying to us once more, turn, repent. And one of the things you can do to, to ensure your repentance, because it's one thing just to say, Lord, I want to turn from this. True repentance asks, what can we do to make sure that we do not go down this path again? And one of the things you can do to help yourself fight secret sins is find somebody before whom you can confess that sin so that you can expose yourself and say, I do not want to keep doing what I am doing in secret. Help me. Walk with me. Hold me to account. Help me know what measures I need that are the equivalent of plucking out my eye or cutting off my hand because I do not want to go through this life holding on to my secret sin and be thrown into hell. And so this is the first place that Jesus starts with us this morning, with his own disciples, beware of and fight hypocrisy. Second, Jesus teaches us to fear God more than man. Fear God more than man. Now, it's an interesting transition in some ways in preaching. One of the things we're often taught is when you go from one point to another, you want to work on your transitions, and then you have a text like this, and I think, well, Jesus isn't doing it too well, right? He just finishes one thing and says, and now on to the next. But it may be that there is a connection here. Because it may be that, that you're hearing this, and the idea of, of being exposed before your fellow man in your mind, of others knowing sins that we think we're keeping secret, the thought of that terrifies us. But brothers and sisters... The one whom we should fear already knows. And that seems to be why Jesus transitions then into this idea that you do not need to fear man, but fear God. Now, he gives us multiple reasons why we should not fear man, but fear God instead. So, we'll walk through these. The first of these is that man cannot ultimately harm us. Man can't ultimately harm us. This is where Jesus begins in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, that's an odd statement, isn't it? If someone says to you, uh, I'm going to kill you, and you say, is that all you can do? They might say, do you know the meaning of the words kill you? right? What more needs to be done? The, the, the only reason that Jesus would be able to say, all they can do is kill you, is if there's something worse than death. And there is. Jesus then, after saying, 
Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, says in verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Jesus says, why in the world would you live your life saying, I want to make sure that the culture at large, the unbelieving world, that mankind is pleased with what I'm doing and will not be against me. I will cater to them when all they could do in their worst is kill you. Whereas if you do not seek to be honoring to the Lord, if you do not fear Him, you do not honor the Lord, you do not by faith bow the knee to His Son and walk in obedience to Him, He can not only end your life, but then cast you into hell, throw you into a place of eternal torment, where according to Revelation, hell is described as a place where they are tormented day and night without rest. Why would you fear the one who can only kill the body instead of the one who can cast you into hell? Now, anytime I know that believers see commands like fear God it can throw us for a loop, right? Because we think things like perfect love cast out fear. I, I, I'm not supposed to live my life. Am I walking around always in fear of condemnation? And that's true. I, I do not think as believers we live our lives constantly in dread of God. No, no, no. He has pardoned us because of the work of Christ. He has lavished His love on us. In Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Him. However, any time a professing believer feels the pull of sin and wants in our hearts to run after sin, we should fear God. Think of the book of Hebrews, where the Hebrews are tempted to turn away and chase after uh, the rituals and the practices of the old covenant and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews says to these individuals who are professing to be believers in Jesus Christ, he says to them, fear that you do not enter God's rest. Fear. Anytime, again, that we feel the pull of sin or we feel the desire to walk away free from Christ, we should fear. Why? Because in verses 8 through 10, Jesus tells us eternity is at stake. Verse 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, there have been many who have, have noted this blaspheming his Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And many believers have therefore been fearful. Have I committed it? Have I done it? The idea is not that it's some sin that you commit that you cannot be forgiven of. The idea seems to me of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The way that we blaspheme the Holy Spirit is when we deny the Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus is saying, as the Spirit testifies to who I am, if you harden your heart to that and you do not acknowledge me as being the one whom the Spirit testifies I am, God the Son who lived and died and who was raised, and you harden your heart and you will not believe, you will not bow the knee, you will deny me, do not think that sin will be forgiven. It won't be. You'll face judgment. And so anytime as a professing believer we feel the desire to deny Christ and latch onto the world so that we might get their praises, fear should creep up in our hearts. How foolish is it of us to fear man more than God? We said this when we went through the book of Revelation, but the way it breaks down is this way. There is a way where you can avoid the attacks of the world in large measure. If you live your life now denying Christ and denying following Him, then you can largely avoid the persecution of the world. But in eternity, you will face the eternal wrath of the Lamb of God. In this life, you can acknowledge the Lamb. 
follow Jesus Christ as your Lord by faith, obey him, and you will very well likely endure the persecution of this world. But in eternity, you will avoid the wrath of the Lamb. This is an easy decision. Fear God, not man. A second reason Jesus gives us for why we should not fear man is because God cares for us. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of much more value than many sparrows. So as you're tempted to fear man and be gripped by them and adjust your life because you want man's approval, one, remember, fear God, not man. He's the one who judges in the end. But also remember that God cares for you. Jesus uses the picture of sparrows. In, in essence, he, he pictures the most valueless creature in his times. In the market, you could buy five sparrows for two pennies. That they're basically worthless, like goldfish nowadays, right? And Jesus says, think of how worthless these creatures are. And yet, everything that happens in their lives happens under my providential care of them. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from me exercising my providential care for that to happen. So in the same way, no matter what we face in this world, no matter the attacks of this world or the threats this world makes, we can know at every step of the way our, God, our Father is exercising providential care over us, that nothing is coming into our lives that is not measured out in His hands, for we are much more valuable to Him than sparrows. He even knows the number of hairs on our head. He has ordained the moments of our lives. So don't fear man. Your God. And then finally, he reminds us that even in those moments when we're brought before authorities and rulers, the Spirit will provide for us in our time of need. The Spirit will provide for us in our time of need. Look at verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Not only will God care for us so that everything that happens in our life is under His providential care, but He'll provide for us in those moments. Now, this isn't a promise to someone to say, if you're getting ready to preach, no need to study. The Spirit will provide for you words to say. No, the Scripture says study to show yourself approved. But in instances where you fear, I'm going to be persecuted and called to give an account going to be dragged before rulers or authorities, have to appear in court perhaps for the sake of, of, of loving and following Jesus Christ. Jesus says, in those moments, the Spirit will give you what to say. I'll provide for you. You don't have to fear because I got this one. Recently, one of my children was doing a homework assignment and it revolved around the individual Polycarp, a disciple of John who was martyred for his faith. And at the end of his life, when he was getting ready to be killed, his last words were, when they told him, deny Christ, he said something like, he has served me these 86 years as my faithful king. How can I deny him now? When I read that, I just think, that's so cool. I wish I were as sharp and wise as Polycarp. Well, I think I'm misreading history when I say that. I think the Spirit of God gave him those words a few weeks ago when Tom made reference to William Tyndale. When the king was authorizing his death and Tyndale's last words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That's so cool. Yeah, those are cool last words because the Spirit gave them to him. This is what Jesus is saying. When you're in those moments, when you have to give an account, the, scripture will, the Spirit will provide for you. Therefore, when we consider the judgment of God versus what man can do us, when we consider that God cares for us, we consider that God will provide for us even in our moment of need before their persecution. The message is clear. Do not fear man. Do not adjust your life based on seeking their approval and praise. Don't fear man, but fear God. And then finally, number three, guard against covetousness and anxiety. Guard against covetousness and anxiety. As Jesus is speaking in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The idea, this is probably a practical problem, right? Something that's come up. Imagine you and your brother are inheriting a piece of land. Your father's died, you inherit this land, and your brother 
maybe saying something like, I don't want to split up the land, let's hold on to it. And you're saying, we've got to split up the land. We've got, we got to sell this thing so we can, I can actually get my inheritance, right? So something like this most likely was going on, a dispute between two brothers over what to do with the inheritance so that one brother wanted it immediately, the other brother wanted to hold on to it. And so this individual then, as Jesus is speaking, says to Jesus, tell my brother to take my side on this issue so that I can get my inheritance. Jesus answers, verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, I'm not getting into your dispute. But then... Jesus uses that as an opportunity to address something with his disciples in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. The idea of coveting, to covet, is to want something that you don't have that your neighbor does. So you might think your neighbor has a spouse that you find desirable, a house that's really nice, cars, a job, whatever it is, and you think, I wish their spouse were mine. I wish their house were mine. I wish those vehicles were mine. Jesus says, that must not characterize my disciples. Beware of all covetousness. But then he gives us as well a few reasons why we can be strengthened to fight covetousness, or how we can fight covetousness. First, he tells us to realize that life doesn't consist of simply the things we have. Look at the end of verse 15. And he said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus simply says, uh, first thing I want to say to you to help you fight covetousness is just realize that life doesn't consist of all that you have. Now, my guess is that we might think, well, that's not very helpful because I already knew that. And again, I think if we were taking a true-false test and I ask you, does life consist of making sure you have the perfect spouse, the perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect job, right, all of this kind of stuff, that all of us would say, no, it doesn't, that's false, that that would ever lead to that. And yet, my guess is that all of us still feel the pull of covetousness. How many of you walked into someone else's house and thought, I wish I had that? Heard of someone else's job and thought, I wish I had that? Heard of someone's income and thought, I wish that were mine. In those situations, the reason we feel covetousness is because we're buying into the lie, that is the key to happiness. If only I had that spouse and that job and that house and those cars and that yada, 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 then I would be happy. And the reality is, no, life doesn't consist in those things. We might say it this way. We do not guarantee happiness just by the possessions that we have. And I think we all know that to be true. Pursuing things is not a worthy priority in our life. So if we then say, well, if pursuing possessions, having the nice everything, the, the, the nice house, the nice car, and all. if that's not worthy of being the, the, the main priority in pursuit of my life, then what is? And this brings us to the other tool that Jesus gives us to fight covetousness. Remind ourselves that our goal must be to be rich toward God. First of all, realize that life doesn't consist of what we have, but on the other end, realize and remind yourself that the goal is to be rich toward God. Now, Jesus then gives us a parable to illustrate this to illustrate that pursuing things as a priority is not a worthy goal, and to show us that pursuing being rich toward God is. In the parable, we read of it in verses 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The idea of the story is straightforward. Man, as really, really nice year of harvest, bunch of crops. He looks around and he says, my barns aren't sufficient to house all these, but man, if I had barns, 
that were sufficient to house all of these crops, then I could put them in those big barns and I would be taken care of for years. I could just sit back and relax and do nothing and just be happy. This is like every man's dream, he's saying to himself, right? And so he does. Tears down his old barns and builds bigger barns and all of a sudden everything looks perfect. Until God intervenes and tells him, you're full. Because this night, your soul is required of you. Now, if we were just hearing that story and didn't know clearly that Jesus was condemning this man, we might think, well, that's not a fair story to tell. Right? I mean, in one sense, it seems reasonable, right? The guy gets a bunch of crops, thinks to himself, if I had a big barns to put these multiple crops, plentiful crops in, then that I would be set for years, I'll do it. I mean, the, the problem we might say, it doesn't seem like the building of bigger barns, it wouldn't seem like the, having the plentiful crops and keeping them on hand. The problem is that the man didn't know he was going to die. But Jesus is saying to us, that's the point. At any moment, you and I could die. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to live in such a way that you are pursuing those things that are worthy of pursuing if you die today. And simply hoarding more and more and more isn't a sufficient way to live, isn't priority. Simply pursuing nicer things is not worth a priority of how we live. Instead, Jesus says in verse 21, We do not lay up treasure for ourselves. That's not a priority of how a believer lives, but we pursue being rich toward God. So if at any moment you are making your priority in life, I'm trying to be rich toward God, then on that day, if you die, you will die with a righteous pursuit. But that brings a practical question, doesn't it? How in the world do you and I pursue being rich toward God? I mean, that sounds good. Let's all be rich toward God. And then we say, you're dismissed. And we're all going, man, I heard a great sermon. I just don't know how in the world to do that. But Jesus gives us pictures. In verses 22 through 34, he fleshes out for us what it looks like to be rich toward God. And particularly at the very end, he gives us an example. Look at verses 31 through 34. Jesus says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, if you want to know what is a worthy priority pursuit in your life, then seek my kingdom. Use your goods, use your possessions, use your finances to pour into his kingdom. Basically, Jesus gives us two examples. One, he says, seek my kingdom. So for you and I as believers, one thing we should ask is, what is Jesus doing? If, if, if seeking his kingdom means I want to see his kingdom, I want to see his reign lived out in this world through the lives of his people, then what does Christ's reign in this world look like? Well, he has told us very clearly to the church in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. The way that we see Christ's reign lived out through men's lives is we preach the gospel to individuals so that they go from from being followers of the devil to being followers of Christ. We baptize them so that they profess our faith and the church attests to their faith and brings them in. And then in the context of a local church, we teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded them to do. That's how Christ's kingdom is, is pictured in this world through his church. And then as a church, we are seeking to do that, not simply here in Jackson, Tennessee, but also nationally and internationally as well. Jesus says, that's where you want to take your possessions and pour them. Seek first my kingdom. And you also want to make sure that you're caring for the poor, right? Sell your possessions, he says in verse 33, and give to the needy. So if we are making our priorities... I want to use my possessions to pursue his kingdom, to pursue the Great Commission, to build up his church. And I'm caring for for the needy, those who are poor, especially believers, do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, he'll say, Paul will say in Galatians. Then as we do that, we are pursuing being rich toward God. And Jesus says, as you pursue those things, that's a direct effect on your eternity. 
You're storing up for yourself treasure there that will not disappear. Here you're going to die and it's going to be left behind. There you'll have treasure for eternity. And also, as you make these things your pursuit, they're going to pull your heart. You pursue these other things as a priority, they're going to pull your heart away from the Lord. You pursue the Lord's kingdom, caring for his people as your priority, that will pull your heart as well. So Jesus isn't saying here, you can't have a nice house, you can't have a nice car, and the like. What he's saying is this. If you were to take a piece of paper and you were to set it down and write at the top, financial goals, number one has to be pursue riches toward God. Use my finances to honor his kingdom, to show his reign, to pursue his mission and care for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two can be, I'd like a nice house. But that's not worthy of being a priority. Our priority must be that we are being rich toward God. And as we do that, then we are living in a way that even if we die tonight, we'll die in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So, realize that life's not about the things we have. Remind yourself the goal is to be rich toward God. And then also, fight anxiety by remembering that God loves us dearly. Fight anxiety by remembering that your father loves you dearly. Now, you might say, what's weird that he can talk about covetousness and then move to idolatry. It feels like he's really switching topics, but he's not. You see, either one of these things can pull us away from wanting to use our finances to pursue riches toward God. If we're coveting, we might say, well, I I can't pour my money into those things because there are goods and possessions I want. If we do not have much, we find ourselves growing anxious over what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to put on? What house am I going to have? Then if we grow anxious about those things, we might say, I can't afford to pursue riches towards God because I have to make sure I have these other things. And Jesus says, I want to tackle that as well. And the way that he tackles it is by reminding us of how much our Father loves us. First, in verses 22 through 25, he reminds us of how much God loves us by using ravens as an example. Verse 22, and he says to his disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, It may be that Jesus uses the example of the ravens because God used ravens in the Old Testament to bring food to individuals. But it may also be that they are just nasty birds. Isaac Mills, one of our interns, was a biology major in school, and so I asked him, what's what's a raven again? Is it like a crow? He says, yeah, but bigger. And their call, the sound that they make, is nastier. Well, a crow is a nasty-looking, nasty-sounding bird. So take that and make it bigger and nastier. They're also one of those birds that if you see something run over on the side of the road, they will gather around and devour it. So you know what you should do the next time you're driving down, when you're driving out of Pipkin today, and there's like a possum that was just murdered on the side of the road by some vehicle? And there are some nasty, squawking birds gathered around devouring that thing. You know what you need to say to yourself? My father provided that for those birds. And if he provided that for those nasty-looking, nasty-sounding birds, how much more is he going to take care of me? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also says, let's also just get reasonable. Anxiety is pointless. He says in verses 25 and 26, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I mean, today if I said to you, if you spent the whole afternoon when we dismiss from here in your home, say it's like one o'clock, and if you'll spend from one o'clock to when we come back tonight at six o'clock, about five hours, and you'll just spend all that time being anxious, then I promise you I can tack on one hour to the end of your life, you'd probably say, yeah, I don't think that's worth it. Well, Jesus says, 
That wouldn't be worth it if you could do it. The reality is you can't. But some of us do much more than letting five hours on a Sunday afternoon let anxiety consume our lives. We let it consume the whole of our lives. And if it can't do something like even add an hour onto the end of your lifespan, I promise you it's not worth anything else as well. So it's just a pointless exercise. Instead, look to the ravens and look to the lilies. Verses 27 and 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass that is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You know, there's a time of year where you can drive down the road and, and, and sometimes it's in the middle of the road on the interstate and the median or sometimes it's up on a bank where there's an exit and there will just be a field of beautiful little flowers just arrayed in all kinds of glory and you get so excited about it. You think this is beautiful. And then like two days later, you're with your family and you say, hey, this is really exciting. I'm gonna go with you down this road and I'm gonna show you these beautiful flowers. And you drive down a couple days later and you're like, well, they're gone. Well, it's because they spring up and they're beautiful, but then they're quickly gone. They're just good for nothing. And then eventually what happens is a big machine comes over and just cuts them all down, discards them. Jesus says, if I take flowers like that, which are here today and gone tomorrow, they're just like grass, worthy being cut down and thrown into the oven. If something as unnecessary, as easily discarded, you might say, as that, if the Lord says in the 24 to 48 hours that they are blooming, I want to make sure that they're beautiful. If he does that for something as meaningless as lilies, how much more will I care for you? You know what this makes me think of? When scientists discover those things that, that nobody has seen the whole time that mankind has been on the earth. Right? They, they plunge into the depth of the ocean and they say, finally, we discovered this creature that does X, Y, and Z. And you think to yourself, why in the world did God make that creature do something magnificently that it would take us thousands upon thousands of years even to discover he's doing it. And I think one reason he lets us make those kinds of discoveries is to show us, see, if I'm doing something amazing and providing for a creature that my people would not even see for thousands of years, how much more am I going to care for you? We are of much more value. And then Jesus says, not only consider the ravens, not only consider the lilies, not only consider how pointless it is, but also don't be like the pagans. Verses 29 through 31. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus says, pagans, individuals who do not know me, they are constantly worried about what they're going to eat, and what they're going to drink, and what clothes they're going to have, and where they're going to live you're not them. You have a Father in heaven who loves you, who knows what you need, before whom you are valuable. And so what we need to do as believers is not let ourselves be gripped by covetousness or be anxious about the things that we don't have, but rather let's say we have a Father who loves us and watches over us and cares for us and provides for us, and therefore will pour our lives into seeking His kingdom. And if you ever doubt that your Father loves you enough to meet your needs, then just remember what He did for you when your need was the greatest. Romans 5 says, when we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When your great need was nothing you could provide for yourself, He sent His Son to live and die and be raised for you so that you might repent and believe and be forgiven of your sins and made a child of God. If he did that, do you really think he's not going to give you what you need to walk in obedience to him? And so as believers, we can be prone to all the common temptations that we see lived out in the lives of the Pharisees and the lawyers. We can be tempted to walk in hypocrisy, to, to hold on to secret sins. Jesus says, no, 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 turn from them. We can be tempted to feel the draw of man and want to fear man and, and seek his approval. And he says, no, 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 fear God and seek to be pleasing to Him. 
We can feel the desire to give our lives over to covetousness and anxiety, but instead the Lord says, no, guard against those things and trust in your Father who loves you. These are just very easy, practical examples, again, kind of like Don Carson bringing his kids around and saying, let's see how they lived. Let's see what we saw just before us, and let's make sure we don't imitate that. This is how the world works, but we don't belong to the world. We belong to a father who loves us and gave his son for us. And so this morning, as we come to the table, it will be an opportunity for us as children of God to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have heard your commands of us, and our answer is by your spirit, by your grace, we will indeed walk in obedience to you. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. We've said earlier in the sermon you need to fear God more than man. Well, right now, if you are in your sin and you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and you're under the wrath of God, and one day, according to this text, the Lord will throw, He will cast into hell a place of eternal torment those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to plead with you, if you're not a believer, to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ today. If you'd like to talk to me or one of the other pastors or your neighbor alongside of you about how in the world can I know, I want to know that I'm trusting in Christ and walking in obedience to Him. We would love to talk to you about that. And then we want to encourage you to be baptized, to make that public profession of faith in Him. If you are a believer, you've already publicly professed your faith, you're a member in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, we want to invite you to come to the table this morning. The way we're going to come is each row is going to dismiss one by one to the outside. Come around, and a pastor will be here. You'll take one stack of two cups, the bottom one with bread, the top one with juice, and then you'll return to your row from to the inside. The second row will follow, third row will follow, so on and so forth. Then once we have all gotten the bread and the juice, we'll then eat together, and we'll drink together. If you're to my left in this section, there'll be a pastor over here for you as well, so you can go to him and receive the elements. And then uh, let's take a moment of silence as we prepare our hearts, prepare ourselves to come to the table this morning.